electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I am Brian Sullivan, and tonight the NASDAQ just did something it has not done in two years, but a big test looming tomorrow. Moments ago, Elon Musk taking legal action, following through with his promise to sue Media Matters, saying the organization defamed X. We'll have the breaking details. Biden facing his lowest approval rating as president. Why isn't Bidenomics boosting his support? The Magnificent Seven accounting for 73% of the S&P 500 gains this year. But a top strategist says the time to look at the other 493 is here. And we've got another installment of our Make It Mondays, how a 30-year-old turned his food photography side hustle into a booming business. What can we learn from that entrepreneur? All that and much more over the hour. So as always, belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. All right, good evening here. Good afternoon out west, everybody. Hope you had a great Monday. I'm Brian Sullivan. All right, we got a busy hour ahead, but first up on last call, as the breaking news animation might imply, the biggest story of the weekend, the turmoil surrounding Silicon Valley, darling, and one of the most valuable private companies in the world, OpenAI. If you're not familiar with OpenAI, they are the maker of ChatGPT, the AI that's writing all your kids' papers. The drama began Friday when Sam Altman was suddenly ousted as CEO by the board. That unexpected exit sent Sockwaves to the industry. Now, over the weekend, the power struggle played out like a new season of HBO's succession. Investors pushed for Altman's return. Employees contemplated quitting en masse. Altman himself teased the new AI venture. And then Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella announcing late Sunday that he had hired Altman and former OpenAI president Greg Brockman to lead a new AI research unit for the company, even though... Microsoft has invested $10 billion into OpenAI. You following all this? It's like the Silicon Valley version of the show, Knots Landing. <laughs> well, moments ago, Nadella sat down with our very own John Fort to talk about what happened, what will happen. John, it was a great interview. Thanks for joining us. Right. I know you got a special coming up after the show as well. Yes. What was the sort of the key takeaway here? Well, the bottom line is uh, Satya Nadella doesn't seem to know exactly what's going to happen next. It doesn't seem clear whether Altman really is joining Microsoft or not. But what it sounds like is clear to him, either Altman is coming to Microsoft or Altman's going back to open AI and working with Microsoft. And I was very committed to our um, you know, customers and confident in our technology roadmap and um, and really partnered with OpenAI and really partnered with Sam. And here, as we speak on Monday, I guess it is today, uh, it's exactly the same place I am, which is I feel that we have all the technology uh, and capability to keep innovating on the products you saw at our Ignite conference last week. 
uh, up and down the stack from silicon to co-pilots and, and, and committed to OpenAI and SAM. And that's, you know, with respect to what configuration, you know, obviously uh, we want Sam and Greg to have a fantastic home if they're not going to be in OpenAI and all the colleagues uh, at Microsoft. Uh, but, you know, I am exactly where I was on Friday morning. He might, he might be the only one. I also asked him whether OpenAI's employees are staying there or jumping to Microsoft. I think at this point, for me, I just want, John, in this moment, right, what is it that I care about? I care about just making sure that we can continue to innovate. And I, as I said, I feel very, very confident. Quite frankly, Microsoft has all the capability to just do that on our own. But we chose to explicitly partner with OpenAI, and we want to continue to do so. And so, and obviously, that depends on the people and of OpenAI and staying there or coming to Microsoft. So I'm open to both options. But one thing I will not do is stop innovating. And so, therefore, that's kind of what I will optimize on into making sure that we keep going forward on the roadmap we have, you know, we talked about, and there was so much excitement around. Brian, in the internet and social media era, I don't know that we've ever seen this level of corporate. I mean, I think there's your headline corporate. I mean, it's kind of like I feel like it's like if this was a movie in production, it's like Brad Pitt was set to star and then suddenly they force Brad Pitt out and then Brad Pitt may go to star in a competing movie. But now there's all these people fighting over Brad Pitt. And that would, of course, be Altman. Does Satya, I've got a lot of questions. Does Satya Nadella have the power to force OpenAI to reinstate Altman. I mean, my gosh, he's invested no. $10 billion in the company. No. Uh, Microsoft does not have that power. Who does have power is employees. And the employees mm. of OpenAI said, we want Sam Altman back, and we're leaving for Microsoft if you don't bring him back. So Microsoft's power, Satya Nadella's power in this case, is that he's the most favored partner. People trust him more than they trust their board, more than apparently they trust other options in the industry. And so it's soft power that he's exercising here. If the movie has Brad Pitt, Sam Altman in it, it automatically probably has some kind of inherent value, right? That Brad Pitt will bring to the box office or insert other A-list actor here. Sam Altman apparently has that same power. Do we have any idea why a guy who clearly is beloved by his employees and Microsoft was pushed out in the first place. Here's what some of this has to do with. People are both excited about AI, if you're investing in it, if you're building it, and afraid of AI if you know the scope of what it could do to humanity if it goes wrong. We've all seen the Terminator movies, right? So OpenAI was formed by skeptics of AI who said, okay, we don't want AI to be controlled by profit-making big public companies. Mm, so we're gonna like a Microsoft. It. So we're gonna form it in this way that makes it a nonprofit and puts people in control who aren't gonna have concern. Kind, the the, kind of the Wikipedia of AI. Yes. Here's the problem though. OpenAI got so successful, so fast, and AI has become so big, it's become expensive. You gotta have a lot of money to get NVIDIA chips because there's a shortage of them. You gotta have a lot of money to get programmers who know how to build AI because they're in high demand. So OpenAI needs all of this money to continue growing, and the investors who are gonna give it to them, well, they wanna make money. I feel like Altman, who I, I do not know and didn't know much about until about last year at Y Combinator, is the $100 billion man, because 
If his employees leave, he doesn't come back and the employees leave. Ninety percent of them said they're going to quit. You don't have a company. And what is OpenAI valued at on the private market? Roughly 90 to 100 billion. Maybe, I mean, it was different before this happened. Sure. Six was was the number that they were going on. OK, but so he's the 86 way, billion dollar man. In a way, it's not just Sam Altman, but he's a big piece of it. Liken this to what we just saw happen at UPS and the automakers. Right. The, the rise of labor. This is engineer labor saying we're walking out if you don't give us the leader. Well, they, that's that what I mean. Want. Like they love him and they're flexing their power as they as they should and have the right to. But but the whole company will go to your point. Yes. I mean, he has power. Nadella has power, but it's the employees. Right. It's their relationship with the engineers, with the workers. That's important here. So think about that from an investment uh, standpoint who not only has the, the leadership influence over engineers, yeah. employees, who's got the ecosystem to, to sort of rally these engineers in the future. That's where the power, you, that's where the valuation. The story is fascinating. Like I said, it's still so much to play out. I wish we had a whole hour to talk about it, but luckily you do. do. Yes, yeah, CNBC, we do next hour. All about this. John Fort live. There you go. Eight o'clock, Satya Nadella, the future of AI, 5 p.m. Pacific. In other words, right after the show. So we're going to actually have to let you go so you can, you know, All right. prep. Yes. John, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks All for right. having me. For more on this crazy story that literally involves 86 to $100 billion, let's bring in The Verge deputy editor, Alex Heath. He has been covering the story closely all weekend. And The Wall Street Journal's Joanna Stern, who recently interviewed Sam Altman for The Journal podcast. Wow. I, Alex and Joanna, thank you. Not sure where to start, so I'll just throw it out. Alex, why has this drama so singularly captivated the attention of the entire technological world? Because this is the hottest tech company in the world in a state of freefall. And at the heart of it, you've got two ideological divides on how AI should be developed. You have the camp that tried to oust Altman saying, we need AI to move slower. It's going too fast. You're commercializing this too fast. And you have Altman and his camp who are rushing to make ChatGPT what is already the fastest growing internet product of all time. So it's a, it's a business story in terms of the power struggle in the boardroom over the weekend. It's also an ideological story that gets to the heart of what's happening in Silicon Valley. Right and, now. and Joanne, I'll get to you in just one second. Thank you. But Alex, I got to follow up on that because I, I guess where I'm confused and maybe John will get this, you know, fair that he talked to Sacha Nadella and they're going to talk about it in the next hour special. It feels like Nadella, who, by the way, is clearly a, a, a business genius and has done amazing things with Microsoft. Is, also, is on both sides in a little bit, right? Because if I'm hearing you and John correctly, OpenAI is fearful of perhaps companies like Microsoft who may want to do with it what they will, but at the same time, Nadella is willing to hire Altman to come into the fold to work with OpenAI. Yeah, I mean, OpenAI from the beginning has been a poison chalice, really, because it's a nonprofit with a for-profit subsidiary. And as we found out this weekend, Microsoft, even though they've invested $10 billion, a lot of that is in cloud credits, by the way, that's coming over time. It's not all cash. But it, because they've linked so closely to this company, they actually don't control it. The people who fired Sam Altman, we actually have not heard from all weekend. And Nadella was on air today saying that he has not heard from them. So what this really exposes is a horrible lack of governance, uh, I think. And, you know, the CEO of Microsoft can come on your air and he can project strength and say that everything's going to be okay. I can tell you for a fact that Microsoft was panicking on Sunday, figuring out be. what are we going to say to the market 
when it opens Monday morning because we've got to get our hands around this crisis. And they don't have their hands fully around it. He said that Altman & Co. are coming to Microsoft really late Sunday night, and now he's on your air today saying, we don't actually know. I can't answer who will be the CEO of OpenAI tomorrow. Yeah. This crisis is not contained. By and, and maybe, Joanna, they should be worried because I read that something like 90% of Fortune 500 companies say that when they use artificial intelligence, they use ChatGPT or OpenAI. I mean, that, that is a huge market share. And so if, if OpenAI implodes or crumbles, to Alex's point, not only are corporate America going to freak out, but the internal value on Microsoft's books is going to collapse. You know Altman. You've interviewed him in long form. What is it about him that would make half or more of his staff walk out with him? Well, I want to answer the first part of what you were talking about because OpenAI and Microsoft's loss is a huge gain for Google and Meta. And that's also what's going on here. And that's why Satya Nadella is really trying to put this back together, right? They had a lead. They had a lead here with OpenAI. And you have had Google and Meta all year trying to catch up both with their consumer products and their enterprise products. And so that is really what's going on real when you look and you zoom out. And today I've talked to a number of developers who are really sort of saying, we're going to wait and see. We're not sure where we're going to go if this doesn't come. So that's what's at stake here. Um, in terms of Sam, I mean, look, this was his baby. He brought in these people. It seems to be quite a culture of uh, love, literally, this weekend. They were all tweeting hearts at each other, different color hearts. Um, if you would like to jump in there, everyone can tweet, I guess, hearts at Sam Altman. And so I think that's really what this is. It's about a company culture. And as John Fort was saying before, it is, it is about the power of those people right now. Yeah, I mean, crazy stuff. Uh, Joanna, do we know where Altman is, what his thinking may be? I, you know him. I do not. Like, what, what do you guess? I mean, take a wild stab at how this ends up in a week or two or a month or whatever. Sam's not responding to my heart emojis, so okay. I don't personally know where he is right now, sadly. Uh, but I am assuming he is in, uh, you know, maybe a bunker. I made a joke in my interview with him about him having a bunker. But so maybe he's in his bunker with his with all of these close allies with him trying to figure out how he's going to play the rest of the situation. I mean, certainly it's been a uh, very cunning, lots of cunning moves on both sides over the weekend. But also, you know, as John said earlier, who knows what's happening? Yeah, Alex, if to your point, I think would you use the term crumbles for OpenAI? If 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 the employees leave, Altman doesn't come back and OpenAI suddenly doesn't have much of a product because all the people that make the product have now left. Who benefits like who stands to win with this chaos continuing? Well, so Microsoft and Nadella will tell you that their outcome that they would like is for everyone to just go to Microsoft. I would say if Microsoft wanted everyone there at Microsoft already, they would already be there. Microsoft owns 49% of this thing. I think the reason they own 49% is very intentional. They're a huge company with massive regulatory risk around the world. They don't actually want this in-house. It's an antitrust regulatory nightmare for them. They would rather it be a separate company that they're invested in and using for Azure. So the outcome that's ideal for them, I think, even with him saying last night that Sam is going to go to Microsoft, is actually that Sam goes back to OpenAI. And we yeah. published on The Verge a few hours ago that Sam wants to go back to OpenAI. The investors at OpenAI are all pressuring the remaining three holdouts on the board. It's literally three people against the entire company. The investors who are pressuring are they, Alex, them. I'm sorry, running out of time. Who yeah. are these mystery people that seem to be willing to destroy the company? 
Sure. It's the CEO of Cora, Adam D'Angelo, who is a known fixture in Silicon Valley, a woman named Helen Toner, who is on the AI doom camp, we need to slow it down, and another woman who has a similar view. Um, they are not OpenAI employees. They don't have equity in the company because they control the nonprofit. So this is a regulatory uh, you know, minefield for Microsoft, and it's a governance disaster on the OpenAI side, and they've got to fix it this week. Alex Heath, Joanna Stern, uh, amazing story. We appreciate you coming on and clearing it up. Thank you very much, guys. Wow. All right, up next, just ahead of Black Friday, investors are still storming to big tech stocks. Should they be running, though, elsewhere in the market store? Plus, Elon Musk threatening legal action as works as he works to stop advertisers from fleeing X. But will that work? We'll talk about it. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. And right now, it's all about Elon Musk's X, of course, formerly known as Twitter. Reuters reporting that his company has filed a lawsuit against the media-focused publication called Media Matters, Musk claiming defamation, something Elon Musk threatened would be done only a few days ago. All because the media organization published a report that claims that ads on X are running alongside anti-Semitic or other hateful content. In a blog post, X said that Media Matters researchers aim to, quote, manipulate the public and the advertisers. NBC News just confirming that story. With us tonight for more on the lawsuit is Reuters reporter Sheila Dang. She broke the story and was the only one to have it for a long time. So, Sheila, great work there. What do we know about this lawsuit? What specifically is Musk claiming? So Elon Musk is claiming in this lawsuit that was filed just about an hour ago that Media Matters manipulated the platform and uh, in order to defame X and surface these ads that showed up next to anti-Semitic content. So X is claiming that Media Matters used newly created con uh, accounts and followed a specific set of accounts that tended to post this hateful content and continue scrolling down the feed until they were served certain posts. So one allegation in the lawsuit is that some of the ads that Media Matters pointed out in the report were only served to one user, which is the accounts that Media Matters had used because, to access the platform. And, and a lot of our audience, Sheila, may not use X. And for those who don't use X, as I understand it, I'm a heavy user. The way it works is basically what you look for. I look for a lot of 
say, stock market news or auto racing, I'm going to automatically get content that may go towards some of the people or the things that I follow in this world. So Musk is alleging, and I want to be clear, this is just an allegation. It could be garbage that this organization established a bunch of fake accounts, started following a bunch of hateful, spiteful garbage, and then kind of sat back and waited for the algorithms to take hold, almost like a, a setup. Would that be fair? That, that is the allegation that X is making in this lawsuit. Uh, they, they are alleging that Media Matters kept scrolling until, until they surfaced ads that appeared next to hateful content. And when I spoke with Angelo Carasone earlier today, who's the president of Media Matters, he said that what the organization did was simply use X the way that any regular user might use the platform and, and that this is the content and the ads that they that they saw, and they questioned why they were able to surface at, at least yeah. uh, ads from five major brands next to this hateful content, or or why that content, that garbage stuff, exists in the first place. To Media Matters' point, uh, Sheila Dang of Reuters breaking the story. Great work, thank you very much, Sheila. All right, let's stay with the world of all things Musk. The Tesla CEO is getting some rare public support from some very high profile people. First off, Bill Ackman. An outspoken supporter of the Jewish community sharing his support for the Tesla CEO, writing, quote, Elon Musk is not an anti-Semite. Ackman noted that Musk is not perfect, but the world is a vastly better place because of him, unquote. Ackman, not the only advocate voicing their support of Musk. In fact, earlier today, Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt, arguably one of the most important Jewish voices in America, said this on Squawk Box. He did something incredibly promising, which he said that Twitter is going to start suspending users who tweet annihilationist anti-Semitic language. Mm -hmm. If he does that, it is a kind of leadership because no other social media companies. Yeah, this is a much further step. Much further step. And I but is the support a little too little too late? Apple, Disney, Paramount, Comcast, our parent network and others have already decided to pause advertising on X. And it's not clear if they will come back. It could be more than a pause. So now the question is if X can fully recover from this firestorm that Musk created. Let's take it now to our next guest. Joining us is CEO of software company Beacon and former CEO of Social Flow, Jim Anderson on set. Jim, thanks for joining us. I, 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 <laughs> what do you make of this mess? Oh, good. What Musk part of mess. it, right? It is, it is a mess. And so let's, let's try to tackle this one at a time. The, the, the lawsuit. Okay, we've just none of us have read the lawsuit yet. I have not heard, though, anything that sounds to me, I'm not a lawyer, but what's the, where's the defamation? Did the ads appear next to the hateful content? Whether it was one time or a hundred times, if it's true, it's true. I, I don't, again, I have a law degree, but I'm not yeah. a lawyer. I think what, and I got to read the lawsuit, but I think what they're alleging is that, that they may have created a lot of fake accounts, not, not just one account for you and one for me, right. and then went after a bunch of stuff that they knew would get them to this end. But I guess my question would be, why is that garbage on there in the first place? Right. That, that is a fair question. But isn't that the way Twitter is meant to be used? You just said that. I mean, I, I could go create 10 accounts on Twitter right now, and, and I could follow whomever I want to. That's the way Twitter works. Yeah, so and I, you could also wanna, manipulate hashtags. I, and so, I mean, I, I could, you could with, pay a couple grand to get something trending, probably. Yeah, but, but the interesting thing is, in some ways, that kind of misses the point. I mean, of course, it's a significant issue. There's a lawsuit. You know, we'll hear plenty about that. But I think the advertisers, you know, would be willing to stipulate that can be fixed, right? Okay, to the degree it's happening, uh, Linda Yaccarino's made commitments, Elon Musk has made commitments, they could correct that. What I think they're worried about is what's Elon Musk going to say tomorrow, well, next week, it. next quarter, right? I just don't, listen, I, he, he, bought, he bought Twitter 
Twitter was under a lot of heat for what some people viewed as government censorship. He said, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to make it open. Of course, it, he fired like or 80 percent of the people left yeah. trying to rebuild it. He hired Linda. Linda, by the way, a former colleague of ours. And I would consider a, a friend of mine. I haven't spoken with her since she's taken this job. However, um, all of his other businesses are firing on all cylinders. T- Tesla price cuts, but their market share is doing pretty well. What, what do you think his strategy is? Is there, is there a strategy? <laughs> I, I think there's an impulsive strategy, right? Uh, part of Where you're strategy, sitting there and you're like, like I, you know. I, can, I can do things, right? I'm, I'm the world's richest man. I can do lots of things. Well, he but, can also bring attention to X in a way that could be good, he, which I and, think is his goal. Yeah. Well, this was not one of those times. And his entire portfolio of companies, he can bring uh, attention to SpaceX, to Tesla, to X. And his AI ambitions, we've been talking about Sam Altman and OpenAI. Elon Musk originally involved in OpenAI yeah. and has not given up that vision. So I think he's, he's in a unique position to take the data coming from Tesla, the data coming from Twitter or X, put them together and compete in that game. If very very quickly, I know we're a little bit over, got to go. Um, listen, TikTok, right? You got people on TikTok that are promoting like stuff Osama bin Laden said. Like, I mean, this is not just an X problem. No, it is not. And TikTok, especially with the youth and especially with the Chinese influence, a lot of legitimate questions about what's going on there. And I think that's a potential bipartisan issue uh, in terms of I the can't imagine why. For those yeah. of us who are in Manhattan and watch the towers come down or in D.C. or in the field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, you know what I mean? And we were I watched it here. So it's not just an X problem. And hopefully it should be bipartisan. Uh, Jim, thanks for coming in. Crazy. Crazy times. Crazy times. Crazy times. Let's play some chess next time and have some tea. (laughs) All right, still ahead. A key test looming for the magnificent seven stocks. Tomorrow we're going to break it down with Lindsey Bell and Lori Calvacina next. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. If you didn't know any better, Wall Street... Look like a mall on Black Friday. We actually now have, folks, some rare and exclusive footage of investors running to buy big cap tech stocks today. Watch this. <laughs> We're obviously kidding. Nobody actually buys physical stock anymore. Okay, of course, this is obviously Black Friday melee. But you get our point. Shares of Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, Meta, Tesla flying off the shelves like, yeah, Cabbage Patch Kids circa 1983. The two hottest stocks today, Microsoft and NVIDIA, both closing at record highs. NVIDIA's earnings are tomorrow, of course, we will be watching. Now, kidding aside, there's a real question here for you, the investor. Goldman Sachs points out today that just those seven big cap stocks account for a 73% gain on the S&P 500 versus just 6% for the gains of the entire remaining 493, making this one of, if not the, narrowest markets in modern history. So let's talk about what it means and what to do. Joining us on set is U.S. Head of Equity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets, Lori Calvacina, and Chief Strategist at 248 Ventures and CBC contributor Lindsey Bell. Uh, great to see you, Lori, on set. Seven stocks, 73% of the return. Is that, I mean, it's easy, but is it healthy? 
Look, I mean, it certainly doesn't feel healthy to the poor active managers who have had to benchmark against the S&P 500 and have had a tough time beating it. Um, but the reality is, I will say, Brian, just about every client meeting I go into, clients say, is there a negative signal in here, just this narrowness and this concentration? And the fact is, there isn't. If you go back and look historically, yes, this is the narrowest market we've ever seen. But when we've seen big spikes in concentration in the past, People are nervous. Sometimes you get that after a period of nervousness or a big kind of crisis in the market. Sometimes mm -hmm. you get it in the middle. Sometimes you get it before. All it tells us is that people are nervous. That's it. And what it, I guess what it tells me slash my question, Lindsay, to you is, uh, do I just keep buying the same seven stocks? Not me, but as an investor, keep buying the same seven stocks or the triple Q and let it ride? Or do I actually now start to trim, take some of my gigantic profits and Throw it into small and mid-caps. Well, I think as we look to the end of the year, uh, the momentum that we've seen and and the trends that are driving the overall market in general higher, I think that can continue. And I th But I think tech is going to continue to lead the way. They're going to steer the ship, if you will. And it's because, just what Lori said, investors are nervous. And you know what tech has that a lot of other sectors don't have? They have this de defensive characteristic to them. And they've sh proven time and time again over the last several years that they can come through in uncertain economic periods. And that's what 2024 is really going to be all about. These are the stocks, Brian, that have seen earnings estimates move higher for the fourth quarter. When I look at earnings growth for these stocks, the average of the seven in 2024 is 22%. That's double the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. On, on the sales measure, sales up 17, 18% for these on average versus zero for the S&P 500. So I think there's a reason that the people are flocking to this sector. AI is a real tailwind that is resulting in, in numeric results. And so I think for that, those reasons, tech is going to continue to be a winner. In the I, near I also term. think it's like Yogi Berra said, right? Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. I think people are flocking there just because everybody's making money there. And why not? ride the tail, at some point, I would imagine it has to stop working or unless you can just tolerate 50 times earnings. Well, look, I mean, it's, it's the big seven, the growth stocks in general, they are crowded. They are expensive, but they are those things for a reason. And that's because the economy is expected to stay sluggish for the next few years. If you look at forecasts and we're starting to see the 2024 outlooks come out, GDP is expected to be about 1% next year and 1.8% in 2025. And guess what? When GDP is below trend or below 2%, growth stocks outperform because economic growth is scarce. And so I think that's one of the reasons why investors just can't quite quit these tech stocks is because they're just confronted with the reality that if we're going to skip a recession, we're going to be dealing with slow growth for a while. But there ha Lindsay, I, I, I guess I, as a, you know, as a proud American, I would like to believe that there are some amazing smaller and mid cap companies out there that are just being ignored. I mean, companies that are crushing it and making great products and making great profits and just being completely ignored by the equity market, which is probably why we have half the number of publicly traded stocks that we did 20 years ago. Well, if you look at the small cap sector, it's it's significantly underperformed all year. People have been leaving these behind all year long. Uh, and I think the reason for that is because we are late cycle. The Fed is probably done hiking. And so that means that 
as we enter the end of the of the cycle, you're late cycle and you need to be in these growth sectors like Lori just really explained. So I think for the rally that we've seen in the small cap up 5% last week, up 10% also over the last three weeks, the, the rally in the financials, the rally in some of these other sectors, I think for that to be really sustainable, mm -hmm. at least in the near term into early next year, I think you really need to see evidence of this soft landing that we keep talking about and hoping for. And that means that growth is going to have to be sustainable in the one and a half to two percent range at least next year, and inflation is going to have to continue to come down. Quickly, Laura, so best, we're still Laurie, be to to be determined. Best place to invest right now is. I would actually add to small cap exposure. People already have the growth stuff, but they're super cheap, and when the Fed starts cutting, people are going to pile in. When the Fed starts, whenever we know that, right. then we'll know the answer. But I like it. You got to think about these other stocks. Lori Calvacina, thanks for coming out to Jersey. Lindsey Bell, we'll see you soon as well. Take care. All right, still ahead. Despite near full employment, falling gasoline prices, and surging stocks, voters still not sold on Bidenomics. We'll talk about why next. All right, welcome back to Last Call. We want to get to the election because we are a little under one year for the 2024 vote. And voters are getting a better look at Bidenomics. And things are looking overall pretty good. Since President Biden took office, the unemployment rate has decreased, although I will say the labor force participation rate has fallen from just before the pandemic. That said, prices, yeah, they still remain high, but the rate of inflation continues to come down. And gasoline prices, about 30 cents a gallon lower than last year, although, again, still a little higher than they were pre-pandemic. But as good as those numbers sound, many voters apparently not feeling much better. A new NBC News poll shows President Biden's approval rating now at the lowest level since taking office. And we are talking about it on this show because that rating largely has to do with the economy. The survey shows that only 38 percent of those reached say the president is handling the economy well. President's economic performance and the announced recent New York City budget cuts also being criticized by a pretty unlikely source, former Biden supporter, rapper Cardi B. How is that a hundred hundred million dollar budget cut in New York City? Yeah, Joe Biden is talking about like, yeah, we could fund two wars. We could fund two wars. My is talking about we don't got it, but we got it. Like We're the greatest nation. No, the we're not. We're going through some right now. Well, we've leaped out the language, but we should also note that today is President Biden's 81st birthday. So happy birthday to our commander in chief, who, like so many in the administration, may be wondering why the decent economic news that we just highlighted seems to not be resonating with voters. Let's try to find out with us now is American Action Forum president and former chief economist of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, Douglas Holtz Eakin, an NBC political analyst and former Housing and Urban Development Secretary, Julian Castro. Thank you both, gentlemen. Uh, first off to you, Mr. Castro, why do you think Bidenomics is, is not, is, or maybe the polls are just wrong? <laughs> yeah, right. well, I think there are a number of different reasons. Uh, first of all, wage growth has not kept up with the rising costs of so many basic things, whether it's food, gas, utilities, the rent. Uh, when you compare it to uh, pre-pandemic times, even though there has been tremendous progress over the last year, especially, uh, wage growth has not kept up with that. So people don't feel this yet. They don't feel the fact that things are going in a much better direction. 
uh, on unemployment. You, know, you compare where we were in January of 2021 when Biden took over, 6.3 percent. We were still definitely feeling the effects of the pandemic. Today, it's uh, been underneath 4 percent for uh, quite a while. Yeah, There's a lot of progress there, but people are not feeling it yet. Time is definitely on President Biden's side, the fact that you have more than 11 months until the election, and they just got to keep hammering away, I think, with the message of where we were before and the progress that we make, uh, we've already made in these last several months and will make in the months to come. I, I hear you. I hear you, certainly. But, Douglas, I think the, the issue in speaking with people all over the country, they want prices to go back to pre-pandemic levels. I mean, I think that's it. They're not looking for the rate of inflation to come down. All they know is that McDonald's used to be 10 bucks. Now it's 20 bucks. Their car insurance used to be a thousand a year. Now it's two thousand dollars a year. People want to go back to the prices before the pandemic, and I, I'm sure you would agree with this, it's never going to happen. Uh, that's right. And, um, you know, inflation rates are for nerds like me. Real people know what gasoline costs. They want to go back. They know what eggs used to cost. They want to go back. And this is not a new phenomenon. This has been in the polling for a long time. It's something that uh, anyone who's worked in a White House and had to sort of explain the mood of the public uh, to, the, to the president uh, has been through. And, and it's not very pleasant. And, and I think uh, the secretary got it exactly right. The real problem is that over nearly three full years of his tenure, people aren't better off. The standard of living is stagnated. They know he had inherited an economy that was growing at 6.5%. He didn't get any better growth. Their incomes haven't gone up, and they're not happy about it. And, and looking forward, he's wrapped his arms around this and called it Biden, Bidenomics, put his name on it, and they have a prospect of either 1% growth next year, hallelujah, or a recession. And that's not a very palatable outlook. So they've got a problem looking back. They've got a problem looking forward. And I think they have a problem with the fact that Bidenomics is about infrastructure and manufacturing. They're things that were really big in the 50s and 60s. That just, just highlights his age issue. He's talking about the old economy. The bulk of these people work in the service sector. Tech is what um, they're looking at. And, and he's not talking about those issues. And so the message is not a, a winning message. And hitting it harder is not going to work. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a Goldman Sachs out uh, note today, Julian, about um, the polls. And we all listen. I know what people think of polls. And we've learned in the past that polls can be spectacularly wrong. In fact, maybe all these polls are reaching like the same 700 people. I, I, who knows? That said, I do trust Goldman Sachs. And they said we find that in prior elections, economic data late in the year prior to the election and early in the election year, have the strongest relationship with the ultimate vote. In other words, it's not polls. It's the data that's coming out now and early in the next year. Do you agree with your, your you know, you, you know, politics and political math. Do you agree with Goldman's assert, assertion there? Well, I think it's how people perceive it. And that's the challenge right now. Obviously, I have a very different view from from Douglas on on how effective Biden has been on the economy. I think that we've gone in the right direction and the numbers bear that out when you compare it to January of 2021, where we were when Trump left office. But you're right that a lot of people are not feeling that right now. And the good news for Joe Biden is that there's still 11 and a half, 11 and a half months left until the election. Uh, and yeah. uh, I, I tend to disagree that how people feel now at this moment in November of 2023 is going to determine how they actually vote in November okay. of 2024. Uh, there's a lot of time and a lot of things can yeah. happen 
on the economic landscape and the political landscape between now and then. So well said. Julian, I apologize. We, we, we got we to gotta leave it there. Julian Castro, Douglas Holtzikin, guys, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. After this short break, Make It Mondays is back, and you're going to want to see this. That's next. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Here are some words that rarely share the same sentence. Good news and air travel. But that's exactly what's happening. As some airfares start to come down, in some cases, way down. CNBC airline reporter Leslie Joseph joining us now with more. This is good news, Leslie. This is good news. It came out in the latest inflation report with fares down 13% from a year earlier in October. And it looks like what airlines are doing is they have too much capacity on their hands. And without business travel back to where it normally is, when you get out of the holiday period, when you get into those Tuesdays and Wednesdays, mm. you're seeing some pretty low fares out there. Okay. Now, I want to push back a little bit because I, I would imagine this is depending on where you live and where you're going. I actually literally have just booked eight flights, eight round trips over the next three months. I fly out of Newark. Mm-hmm. I didn't get any good deals, but I would imagine if you're willing to move around a little bit, that's where you're going to find the best deals. Yeah, flexibility is If you key. can move around. If you can and if you're flexible on your dates. So I'm trying to book a business trip, let's say, next week. I, I'm seeing 400-plus going to Houston for you know a, a Wednesday and a Thursday, which isn't great. It's not rock bottom prices. But we are hearing from Southwest Airlines and some others that they're discounting a little further than they normally would if you want to fly really early in the morning and if you want to fly really late at night. And you do have to shop around and be flexible. So can you give us some examples of maybe are there specific airlines, I mean, that are really doing well or there's specific air routes uh, it depends on the time of year. So I, I saw an American Airlines sale back in October. That was $49 each way. I saw a New York. Uh, $49. $49. Um, Where does that go from LaGuardia, LaGuardia to Newark? To Milwaukee. Oh, oh the MKE. Yes, General yeah. Mitchell Field. Cheaper than I, the, I love it. Yeah. I know it well. Cheaper than the cab between LaGuardia and Newark if you were to take one. Um, so it, it does depend on where, where you're going, when you're going. Southwest Airlines says, you know, if you want to go really early in the morning or really late at night, they'd have a very special fare, fare, fare sale that only lasted, I think those, those tickets were gone within hours. Wow. Um, but you got to go really early or, or be willing to fly at 10 o'clock at little night. little sully side up on air travel. Leslie Josephs, we love the good news. Thank you. No problem. All right. It is also Monday, so it's Make It Monday, our celebration of small business. Tonight we meet Sean Audette. He combined his passion for photography and food into a six-figure business. Working as a freelancer comes with challenges, but for me, I feel like it's mostly benefits. My name is Sean Adette. I'm 30 years old, and I earn around $134,000 USD a year as a food photographer in Winnipeg, Canada. I worked in culinary arts, hospitality really, as a cook and then sous chef. I eventually got into photography and that kind of spun into a bit of a passion that I decided to turn into first, just a little side gig doing photography. I was able to sort of leverage those skills that I had developed in the kitchen into a really successful early career doing food photography. My business income has absolutely been growing consistently. I mean, when I first first started out in 2018, 
I think I might have made around $10,000 Canadian or so, but then it would double and double and double again, essentially every year. The team can be as small as just myself, or myself and my primary assistant. A big part of our process is making sure that the sets themselves are dressed correctly and that the props that we're using match whatever our company or client's brand needs. I think there's always going to be a little bit of anxiety around trying new things or making a big leap like that. It's always a risk, but even if it does doesn't work out, I think it's worth trying. And Sean Audette joins us now. Sean, great to have you on Make It Monday. So you're not taking pictures of people going out to dinner. I was looking at your portfolio. You're working with big brands in studio settings. How specifically do you make your money in this job? Yeah, absolutely. So really, it comes down to building a relationship with clients. And like you said, right, you nailed it. Our um, specialty is in food products, often beverage products as well. Uh, we reach out to clients or clients reach out to us. We build that relationship. And when it comes down to you know the need for assets for various marketing campaigns, that's where we come in. And we work with members of uh, brands, marketing teams to essentially create assets for campaigns. Yeah, like a, uh, a whiskey alternative called Ritual that I was looking at. A free plug for them mm -hmm. there. Uh, Sean, so how do you get new clients or is it so busy they're coming to you at this point? You know, when we very first started, um, it was a lot of essentially building an online presence, often through various agencies, freelancing agencies. Nowadays, I'm really, really thankful that it's a lot of brands and companies coming directly to us, essentially based off of our work. Yeah. And, and what has been the most challenging aspect of going from trying to be sort of in the culinary side to moving over to the photography side? Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say, honestly, um, I, I'm, I got to say, I'm a people person. I love working in teams. Uh, it was a bit of a, a bit of a change, right? Going from working in kitchens or working in research as part of a big team to then moving to primarily being on my own. I'm really fortunate now to be able to work with more professionals, models, stylists, assistants, uh, much more often. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, when, when you, own and run your own business, oftentimes it is you. I love it. Up there, my neighbor is from Winnipeg, Canada originally. Her family is still oh, no there. Way. So congratulations. Our first international edition of Make It Monday. Sean Audet, really appreciate it. Be well and good luck. Thank you. Absolutely. Take care. Oh, there you go. All right. Do you know what happened 25 years ago today? Construction began on the largest single structure humans ever put into space. That, of course, the International Space Station. The main construction completed in 2011. Station, though, has been occupied since 2000. Since then, it has hosted more than 250 astronauts from 20 nations. How much did the ISS cost? About $150 billion. You could buy, what, 545,000 Lamborghini Huracans with that money? But, you know, who's counting? All right, folks, that is it for your last call on a Monday night. But stick around because we got a live CNBC special with Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella and AI. It's a biggie. It is next. We'll see you tomorrow.
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.